Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Here is the clock, the Trumpton clock, telling the time steadily, sensibly, never too quickly, never too slowly, telling the time for Trumpton. Hello, and a warm welcome back to My 70s TV Childhood, the place where it's okay to bang on about what it was like to grow up as a child in 1970s Britain, and where television was at the heart of our childhoods. Now, if you're a regular listener, and also if you're paying attention, you probably noticed that that wasn't our usual signature tune. And you've also probably guessed what we're going to be talking about today. Yes, It's what has become known rather pretentiously, but also fondly, as the Trumptonshire Trilogy. But before we walk down memory lane to remember the shows, I'd like to say my usual thanks to all of you who've taken the time to get in touch with us. It really makes producing this podcast worthwhile when you get in touch and share your memories, which we've managed to spark. I even love hearing from some of our more regular correspondents who enjoy pointing out where I haven't quite remembered things correctly. Thank you to you all. So, back to the Trumptonshire Trilogy. Now, the shows were made and first shown in the 1960s, but they were also a staple of my childhood in the 70s, so I think they are fair game for our podcast. We discussed some aspects of the shows in previous episodes, but so many of you have been in touch suggesting we spend a little bit longer on them that I think a full episode is the least that we can do. It also helps that I think they were some of my best-loved shows from that period, and they bring back happy memories of, literally, watching with Mother, as I and my sister sat with my mother around the small black-and-white TV set, which served our family so well in the early 70s. Now, there's been a debate about the influence of film and TV on behaviour, and particularly that of children, since moving pictures began to be seen in the late 19th century. My own experience of Trumpton is a cautionary tale. Now, I have mentioned this in an earlier episode, but my wife recently reminded me that the tale was told, and not for the first time, by my best man at our wedding in 1994. As a small child, I suppose I must have been about two, I was obsessed by the telephone. Now, as a reminder, or as another thing that some of our younger listeners might think I'm actually making up, The telephone was something held in great reverence by British households in the 1970s. By no means everyone had a telephone, for starters. If you wanted one, you often had to wait more than a year to get one fitted. And those that had a telephone generally had one fixed line. A large black telephone that sat in place of honour on what was called a telephone table, generally in the front hall of your house, and usually next to the front door in the coldest, draftiest spot in the whole building. There was also an obsession with only using the phone when it was absolutely necessary, and ideally waiting until after six, 
which is when the cheap rate began. Now, looking back, this all seems ludicrous, but people were obsessive about it, even down to the point of having a lock on the dial, as one of my friends had in their house, which had been put on by his irate father after his elder sister had spent a fortune. I think it was probably more than a pound. Running up the phone bill, listening to Donny Osmond on dialer disc. Remember that? Dial 160 to listen to a crackly record on the phone. Happy days. Anyway, I was obsessed by the telephone after having watched Trumpton and, for an extended period, ran to the phone whenever it rang in our house and insisted on answering it, saying, Hello, Trumpton Fire Station. Captain Flack speaking. Yes, right away, right away, before putting the phone down on the unsuspecting caller. I also got into the habit of picking up the phone and dialing random numbers in an attempt to contact Captain Flack at Trumpton Fire Station and having conversations with whoever happened to pick up the phone at the other end. On one occasion, I'm reliably informed, I spent a happy 20 minutes chatting to the manager of the Warrington Trustee Savings Bank before one of my parents intervened and apologised profusely. Thank goodness international direct dialing was only in its infancy at the time, or who knows who or where I could have ended up calling. So I think that settles the debate on whether TV influences children's behaviour or not. So back to the TV shows. Thank goodness I hear some of you saying. The first of the Trumptonshire shows was Camberwick Green, which was shown on the BBC for the first time between January and March 1966. There were 13 episodes in all, and, as was the habit of the BBC in the 60s and 70s, these were shown again and again over the years, imprinting themselves into, a me- into the memory of Britain's post-war children as they grew up. One of the most notable features of the show was the opening sequence, which showed a writing desk, upon which stood a box. box wound up and ready to play but this box can hide a secret inside can you guess what is in it today This was the way each episode started. One of the main characters in the show would rise slowly from the musical box and then have a short chat with the narrator, the legendary Brian Kant. The first episode featured Peter Hazel, the postman, and then proceeded to follow him as he went about his day. Most of the plots, as I recall, were were very straightforward and involved ordinary people in and around the village doing ordinary things and usually featuring some mild disturbance to the routine, which the featured character would be able to sort out either on their own or with the help of the regular cast of village characters. 
they would then be seen in a final scene returning to the musical box before the credits literally rolled as they were rolled on a sort of blackboard by a Pierrot-type clown who played no discernible part in any of the episodes from what I remember. Why was he there winding through the credits? I've no idea, but the opening and closing sequences became a hallmark of the show and are fondly remembered, even to the extent of the opening scene being parodied in the BBC's time-travelling cop drama Life on Mars, when the out-of-time detective Sam Tyler appeared in his own version of the Camberwick Green opening. This is a box, a magical box, playing a magical tune. But inside this box, there lies a surprise. Do you know who's in it today? Sam Tyler. Hello, Sam. How are you today? Oh, dear. Not very happy. Is it Gene Hunt? Is he kicking in a nonce? DCI Gene Hunt didn't feature in Camberwick Green, thankfully but a very positive role model for law enforcement did. He was, I think, one of my favourite characters in the show, mainly because he rode around on a very exciting-looking large motorbike, which even had its own radio telephone. Oh, you see, there's that telephone thing again. He also, like most of the other characters, had his own signature tune, and I always thought that his was the best. policeman, the big friendly policeman, P.C. McGarry number 452. Lost dogs, thick fogs, or don't know what to do. Then get the policeman, the big friendly policeman, P.C. McGarry number 452. P.C. McGarry number 452. Yeah, you get the picture. Um, another character who had a fine theme tune was Windy Miller. It's Windy Miller. Hello, Windy. Are you busy? Plenty of corn to grind. Plenty of wind in your sails. Ah, oh, yes, they're going nicely, aren't they? Windy Miller, Windy Miller, sharper than a thorn. Like a mouse, he's spry and nimble when he grinds the corn. Like a bird, he'll watch the wind and listen for the sound, which says he has the wind he needs to make the sails go round. Phew! It's warm work being a miller. Now, Windy was an old-fashioned countryman who ground corn in his windmill, Collier's Mill. Even in the mid-60s, Windy was a representative of a time gone by. He dressed in a smock and an old-fashioned hat and chewed a stalk of corn from time to time. He also rode a tricycle and seemed to be quite a shrewd businessman, always seeming to come out on top. 
Now, I may also be imagining it, but I do seem to remember on one occasion, um, he also drank too much of his own very strong cider one morning and fell asleep, thus causing a major incident in the Camberwick Green corn supply chain. Can you imagine that on a kids' TV show today? No, me neither. But, and this is the thing that keeps coming back to me when we look at our childhood TV favourites, it was all a long, long time ago, and our attitudes as a society have changed. Largely for good, but not always for the better. So, other notable characters included Captain Snort and the Army Cadets at Pippin Fort, who featured in just about every episode, providing useful support to help the minor crisis in the episode, whatever was going on. I can still hear their bugle call now. And when they climbed into their troop lorry, they, or rather Brian Kant, the excellent narrator, would burst into song. Now, I suspect that that tune is a familiar one to many of you, and partly I think that's because it was constantly recycled for other characters. So, for example, when Mickey Murphy, the baker, goes out on his deliverers, he's Riding along in a baker's fan, in a humperty bumperty baker's fan. Do, 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 do. Well, you get the picture. We haven't got time to mention all of the characters, but some of the others included Dr. Mop, who wore a top hat and drove around in what appeared to be a vintage Rolls Royce of some kind. Seems like somebody was doing okay for the Trumptonshire health economy. We also had Jonathan Bell, the farmer, Roger Varley, the chimney sweep, and Mr Crockett, who ran the local garage come petrol station. They all had their stories to tell, and we listened to them all as they told them. And that's about it. Lots of ordinary stories, with enough going on to keep us under fives gripped to the screen, and distinctive enough for people in their 50s now, like me, to still remember the characters and the words to their songs. I'm not sure why there was only one series made of Camwick Green, but it was followed up by a sort of sequel. And I have to admit my favourite of the trilogy, Trumpton, which was first broadcast exactly a year after Camberwick Green and featured similar stop-motion animation and, even in the style later copied by Dynasty and the Colbys of California, had guest stars crossing over from Camberwick Green to appear in Trumpton. As we heard at the start of this episode... Trumpton was dominated by its town clock, which stood on the market square, and it was always full of characters bustling around going about their business. We always had the carpenter, Chippy Minton, and his son Nibs, getting ready to do more carpentry-type things. Mrs Cobbett, the florist, who had a stall under the town's statue of Queen Victoria. And Miss Lovelace, who ran a hat shop, 
but probably didn't make much money as it seems she spent most of her time gossiping around the square, accompanied by her three little dogs. The format was much like that of Camberwick Green, although without the musical box or similar opening device. Brian Camp provided the same gentle and engaging narration. There was always an issue which emerged and then was resolved by the end of the episode. Often the mayor was involved, who, who wore his official robes and regalia all the time, which I thought as a kid was great. And I was very disappointed when I first met the mayor of Warrington, who simply had a chain on. But anyway, but whatever the drama or crisis, there was always a call to Trumpton Fire Station, where Captain Flack picked up the phone and answered using the exact words that I baffled callers to Padgate Vicarage with. And once the call had answered, Captain Flack pressed the button, the bell rang, and we had the firemen slide down the pole of the fire station, and then the bit which I'm sure you're all itching to join in with. Are you ready? Here we go. off went the fire engine to try and deal with whatever crisis had emerged. Of course, it was never a fire, much to Captain Flack's irritation. All he wanted was a proper fire to show what he and his men could do. Apparently, it's a bit like that in the fire service today. So successful have we been in fire prevention and persuading people that putting on a chip pan when you get back from the pub after a few beers isn't a good idea. There are actually very few fires to be put out something which frustrates some of the fire crew who joined up, well, to fight fires. Anyway, there were no fires in Trumpton, and once whatever emergency it was had been resolved, everyone got on with the rest of their day until gathering together again later in the afternoon around the bandstand to listen to the fire brigade play the same tune. Yes, always the same tune, every day, every week, every month, forever in Trumpton which, like Camberwick Green, seemed a little bit out of time even in 60s and 70s Britain. But the band playing at the end of every episode provided a feeling of happiness and comfort that sort of washed over me as a child, and made me want some more. Same time, same place. So, from Trumpton, we move on to Chigley, the last instalment of the Trumptonshire trilogy. Chigley was first shown on British TV at the end of 1969. In fact, the final episode was broadcast on the 29th of December 1969, ushering in the decade on which our podcast is focused. Unlike the shows that had gone before it, though, it was repeated incessantly during the 1970s, so it is still a central plank in my 70s TV childhood. I have to admit that Chigley was my least favourite of the three, although I did enjoy it nonetheless. I think it may be because the setting was a little bit more removed from the everyday scenarios that Camberwick Green and Trumpton presented, however archaic some of the views of English life were in those programmes. 
Chigley largely revolved around the adventures of an eccentric aristocrat, Lord Belborough, who lived at Winxford Hall in the village of Chigley. Now, Lord Belborough, who appeared to be unmarried, shared his mansion with a butler, Mr Brackett, who helped him in his alternative life. Hang on a minute, this is starting to sound a bit like Batman. I've never thought about that before, the rich, solitary man living alone with only his butler to share his secrets. Anyway, the similarities stop there. Lord Belborough and Mr Brackett didn't spend their time fighting villains on the mean streets of Trumpton. No, their secret passion was a steam engine called Bessie, which provided the main plot lines of the show. Each episode would involve somebody making a phone call to Winkstead Hall. You see, there's that telephone business again, which Mr Brackett would answer after walking down a long, picture-lined corridor. And then the solution to whatever problem arose would be solved by Lord Belborough and Bessie. I seem to remember the biscuit factory was central to a number of plot lines, and Lord Belborough was often involved in either transporting biscuits to Treadle's Wharf, where there was very conveniently an intersection to allow loading of canal boats from the train, and vice versa, presumably so that the biscuit factory could get the right raw materials. So it turns out there was actually quite a complex transport infrastructure in Trumptonship. We also had lots of guests from both Trumpton and Camberwick Green, like the Mayor of Trumpton, Dr Mop, and even PC McGarry number 452. And as a child, I found it fascinating that the characters moved from one programme to another. I suppose you could call it the TCU, or the Trumptonshire Cinematic Universe, whereas thinking about it now, I would imagine one of the reasons there were so many guest stars was to reduce the costs of making more puppets. But perhaps I've become a bit more cynical in my old age. There were also some chiggly regulars like Mr Swallow, who ran Treadles Wharf, as mentioned earlier, and Harry Farthing, a sculptor who worked at Chigley Pottery, and his young daughter Winnie, who was often a passenger on Bessie as the adventures unfolded. Funny, I can't really imagine a kids' TV programme today where a young girl goes off with two middle-aged bachelors to have a ride on their privately owned steam train. But we did live in far more innocent times then. Anyway, after establishing whatever the crisis was that required the intervention of Lord Belber on Bessie, the locomotive was shunt out of its shed and then get moving, to the accompaniment of the most famous musical part of Chigley, and one which I suspect you've all been waiting for. So, wait no longer. Again, in the cutting through the tunnel, rushing, clanking on the track. We... 
For many of us, I'm sure this is the most memorable aspect of Chigley, and I bet lots of you still know all of the words to that song half a century later. Sorry, all, it is that long ago. The music by Freddie Phillips, sung beautifully by Brian Kant, has a timeless quality, and even now, just listening to that snatch takes me back to sitting cross-legged on the carpet in front of our small black-and-white television set, dreaming of travelling on a steam train and riding on the footplate there and back again. The music has also left its mark on popular culture in other ways. Some of you will remember one of John Peel's favourite bands, Half Man, Half Biscuit, and their songs Trumpton Riots, and their version of Time Flies By When You're the Driver of a Train, which involved copious amounts of cocaine being shipped using Bessie the Steam Locomotive. Quite a touching tribute in a way, boys. Anyway, back to the show. Lord Belborough seemed to operate a sort of enlightened feudalism in the village of Chigley, as all the villagers seemed to be employed at the biscuit factory, and, during every adventure, it was stressed that everyone had to be back in Chigley in time for the six o'clock whistle, which blew to mark the end of the working day at the biscuit factory. Immediately after the workers left, Lord Belborough would strike up a tune on a huge musical contraption, which I'm reliably informed is called a Dutch organ, and the happy peasants, um, sorry, factory workers, would then dance on into the night. Every night. Again. Forever. So that concludes our whistle-stop, well, no pun intended, tour of the Trumptonshire trilogy. I hope it's brought back lots of happy memories. I'm sorry if I didn't get around to talking about your favourite character or song from the series. But if you want to share your memories of Camwick Green, Trumpton or Chigley, you can do so by visiting our Facebook page, at my 70s TV Childhood. You can tweet us at 70s TV Childhood. Email Oliver at my70stvchildhood.com or you can leave a comment on our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com Well, that's all for now. I can see Lord Belber has just emerged and is about to start playing his Dutch organ, so it must almost be time for the six o'clock whistle. Thanks for listening, take care, and join us again soon for more from My 70s TV Childhood.